0: I was reading this week how to know you're a mother, and a a lot of these were new to me. You know you're a mother when you have a Pinterest board full of crafts that you're never going to get to. That's a sign you're a mom. If your kisses have magical healing properties, they can make boo-boos better, you're a mom. You know you're a mom... Trust me, because dads don't do this. You know you're a mom if you run towards projectile vomiting rather than running from it. Okay, it's the dads who are running from it. Um, If you've ever used Photoshop to crop out boogers, you know you're a mom. If you believe that Flintstone vitamins are the only thing standing between your child and scurvy, you're a mom. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you've ever used your own saliva to clean your child's face, you know you're a mom. By the laughs, I can tell who, who did it and who didn't. If you've ever heard your mother's voice coming out of your own body when you say, not in your good clothes, you know you're a mom. You know you're a mom if there are days when you say, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But deep down, you know, you wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, when God wants to do a mighty work, I have found he often does it through an infant. I mean, think about God's redemption plan. How how did he choose to redeem mankind? He did it by sending a baby to be born in a manger in a town called Bethlehem to a woman named Mary that the world had never heard of. An unknown woman, and yet he chose her to carry his son. I have found there's a lot of mothers that you don't know about, but you know their children because of what they've done. Take, for instance, Mary, who lived in Seattle, Washington. She had a young son named William, and, and William was often in trouble in school, and it was because he was bored. And so they really didn't have the money, but they took him out of school and put him into a school for exceptional children and he seemed to have a certain technical aptitude and so when, he was, when William was a boy, computers were just out and they were extremely expensive and so at a great cost and sacrifice to the family, Mary made sure that William got a computer. She encouraged him as he was growing up to start his own business and at the age of 31, William became the youngest billionaire in the world. Her son doesn't go by William, he goes by Bill. Bill Gates. Or take for instance Myrtle. Many people don't know Myrtle. She raised a son named Jimmy Lee in Shreveport, Louisiana. The dad was a traveling evangelist and so he was often gone and Myrtle would take little Jimmy Lee on walks all the time talking to him about God and how much God loves him and God made the birds and God made the grass and just just investing and pouring into his little life. And uh, most folks don't know Myrtle, never have, But we know her son, Jimmy Lee, when he grew to adulthood, he decided to go by the name James, and his last name is Dobson, the focus on the family founder. I tell you that because today in our text, there's a woman who you probably don't know by name, I'm going to tell you her name, but even if I tell you, you probably don't recognize it, but you know her son. The woman's name is Jochebed. Some of you say, who is Jochebed? And some of you are like, I have been waiting for the pastor to preach on Jochebed. <laughs> you don't know her, but you know her son. He went by the name Moses, wrote the first five books of the Bible, was the great lawgiver. So let's look at that, some of that story. It's found in Exodus chapter 2. Abraham, I mean uh, Abraham Lincoln said this, no man is poor who has a godly mother. I've taken that phrase for the title of our sermon today. No man is poor who has a godly mother. I believe that Jacobed was a godly mother, and I believe there are many godly mothers here. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. And the man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child... And behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. There are, there are four things that I want to talk to you, similarities between the time of Jochebed and the world in which we live today, moms, and then there's some life application I want you to be able to take home with you, Okay. The first thing that we need to understand that was true for Jochebed and it's true for us today is that we are raising children in a hostile world. This is not a world that is uh, favorable to people of faith. This story doesn't begin in Exodus chapter 2. It actually begins in Genesis chapter 37. There's a young man by the name of Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, and he has a dream and tells his brothers that one day they're all going to fall down before him and Uh, serve him in essence and you can know how that rubbed them the wrong way and so they take him one day and they sell they throw him into pit and then they sell him into slavery where he's carried off to Egypt they tell the dad that Joseph was killed well he ends up being a slave to a captain in the Egyptian guard by the name of Potiphar Potiphar's wife was sweet on Joseph and she was constantly trying to seduce him and one day she really tried hard to seduce him and he refused her advances and she grabbed his coat and he ran out of his coat and left potiphar comes home and she then lies about joseph and said he tried to rape me and see i've got his coat to prove it well joseph's thrown into prison while he's there he meets a couple of guys that serve the king one of them is going to live one of them is going to die but they both promise they'll remember him when they get out of prison but the one that lives forgets all about him for a few years, until one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and no, no one can interpret his dream. And the man who was in prison with Joseph said, hey, I forgot all about this guy, but there's a guy in prison who can interpret your dream for you. And so they, they go, and they get Joseph, and Joseph comes in, and sure enough, he interprets Pharaoh's dream for him, and Pharaoh puts him into his cabinet, where Joseph rises to second in command. He is second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. There's a famine in Israel, and through a process of events, Joseph ends up revealing himself to his brothers, and he tells them to go get the family and bring them to Egypt where there's plenty of food, and they'll take care of them. And so that's what happens, and that's how Jochebed ends up in Egypt. Now, if you still have your Bible open, look at chapter 1, verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so probably the passing of a few generations and all of a sudden there's a Pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't know Joseph, and he thinks he has a problem on his hands. Look at verse nine. He said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. He said, man, they outnumber us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war, that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. And so the the, the harder it got, the more God showed favor and they tended to multiply. And so Pharaoh's worried now. He he knows, man, we are are completely outnumbered. What are we going to do? Verse 22 of chapter 1. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, talking about the Hebrews, Every son is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And so he says, this is how we're going to deal with it. Every Hebrew boy that is born, we're going to throw him into the crocodile infested Nile. If it's a girl, we'll let her live because she may end up marrying one of ours. Be, be more girls to marry. But if it's a boy so that, they, so that we can cut down their numbers, we're going to stop allowing them to have sons. I believe Jacobid. we're going to see that she was a godly woman. In spite of the hostility around her, the world that she lived in. Friend, let me tell you something. If you have or had a godly mother, you need to be thankful for that. You do. I mean, you have a lot to be thankful for because, listen, there's a generation in America today that does not know the Lord and does not know what it's like to be raised in a godly home. And so if you had that blessing or if you're having it right now, you ought to praise the Lord for that. Egypt was very pagan. They had gods for everything. God's for this, God's for that. And and because of some of the gods they worshipped, they had no respect for human life. That's why it was real easy for Pharaoh to say, just throw them into the Nile. It's no big deal. Life didn't mean anything to them because of some of the gods that they served. Why would Pharaoh do this? To kill off the people of faith. But was Pharaoh the real enemy that day? No, he's not. He wasn't. Pharaoh was nothing but a pawn in the hand of Satan because Satan from day one has been trying to get rid of God's people. Whether it be through Pharaoh or Hitler or whoever, Iran today, he's, he's trying to, to rid the world of God's people. Paul told us who our real battle is against in Ephesians 6 verse 12. He said, we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood. Listen friend, Pharaoh is not the enemy. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan is the enemy, and consistently throughout history, he wants to destroy the people of God. Jochebed lived in a world where there were many gods, but she served the one true God. Birth ought to be a happy time, shouldn't it, when a mom gives birth? I was thinking about Jochebed here and the edict's already been issued and so for nine months they didn't have ultrasound she didn't know if it was a boy or girl so for nine months she's worried and the day comes for her to deliver and she has the baby and the midwife is over cleaning up the baby and the midwife dreads the question because she knows it's coming and Jochebed's afraid to ask but she asked anyway she said is it a boy or girl the midwife reluctantly says, it's a boy. Instantly, I believe Jochebed's heart was breaking because she knew that this young child was in danger because Pharaoh had issued the edict that he should be thrown into the Nile and perish. Jochebed had her hands full because we know she already had two other kids. She had Miriam, who was anywhere from about six or seven to a preteen, and then she had Aaron, who was three years old, and now all of a sudden baby Moses is born, and so, you know, our kids were all four years apart, and, and we didn't plan it that way. It's just the way it happened. We thought they would never get out of diapers. We, 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 I mean, we were buying diapers for life, and, and um, some of you mothers, you know, I think, I think mothers that God gives sons to are uniquely cut out for that, because there are some moms who they wouldn't know what to do with the son. But my wife was cut out for it, man. She, she, she took it head on and dealt with the two sons after we had Leah, and it was no problem for her. But here's what I found about raising kids. When you have the first one, it's real easy to take care of them, isn't it? Everybody wants to hold them, and you want to hold them, and you know it's real easy to take care of one. Then all of a sudden, you have the second one, and it becomes man-to-man coverage. You got one, and your spouse has one, right? And then if God blesses you with a third, all of a sudden, it becomes zone coverage, you got this room and I got that room and whatever children are in your room, that's who you're watching. So Jochebed has her hands full because now she has three. Well, today, is, just as she had anxiety over the child's birth and what she would do, I think there's a lot of anxiety for moms and dads today because we live in a world that is hostile to people of faith. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be anxious to raise a child today, these are difficult times. I mean, school shootings. I mean, just, just this week in Palmdale, California, it seems to happen over and over again. And, and so it's a hostile world in which we raise our children. The second similarity is, I, I call it harboring children in that hostile world. Harboring children in that hostile world. Jochebed is a remarkable woman. It's in Exodus 6, verse 20, that we find that her name is Jochebed, and his, her husband's name was Amran, Okay. But she was a remarkable one. We often talk about the weaker sex. I think that is only in physicality. I think oftentimes when it comes to spiritual resolve and emotional strength, they're the stronger sex. We're the weaker sex. Jochebed was a remarkably strong woman. She bears a son in verse 2. And and if you have, it says it here in my translation, it says he was a beautiful child. If you have the King James, it says he was a goodly child child and that word literally translates into beautiful um in other words and you know there's not a lot of pretty newborns around right I mean let's be I, with your child is the exception I, I understand your child was the exception but I mean most newborns and I've been to the hospital and a lot of them are born they come out reddish pink and they come out with wrinkles and and they come out with odd shaped heads you know it just happens but it, this is interesting. It says here that he was a beautiful child. Josephus, the Jewish historian, told us that people actually, men actually took off of work to come see Moses because he was that beautiful of a child, that beautiful of a baby. In Acts 7, verse 20, it says, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. Literally, it says he was special. God sometimes listen maybe your parents said that you were an accident maybe they said you were unexpected hear me there are no accidents or unexpected when it comes to the sovereignty of God and giving of children I don't believe that you were an accident I don't believe they may not have expected you but God certainly knew when you were coming and you are special to the Lord God Moses was special. She's going to harbor him. She's going to do all that she can to hide him. She hides him for three months. You ever tried to hide a child for three months? We go up and visit our grandson, who's like eight months old now. I can't imagine trying to hide him for three hours. And and she she hides Moses for three months. And then she realizes, man, somebody's going to figure out there's a baby in the house. And so she comes up with this plan of what she's going to do. It says, verse 3, when she could no longer hide him. When she could no longer harbor him, she's going to send him out into the world. She takes an ark of bulrushes, literally a basket, and she covers it with pitch and tar so that the water won't get into the basket and drown the child. And then it says she takes him and she puts him in the reeds at the riverbank. Why would she put him in the reeds? Because she didn't want him to float down the river. She wanted him to be found so that hopefully whoever found him would take care of him. And so she takes him there. In a literal sense, she was obeying Pharaoh's order. She was putting her child in the river, in a literal sense. But technically, Pharaoh didn't say you couldn't use a basket. And so, technically, she was right. She was protecting him. Mothers, let me help you understand. The best thing you can do for your child, whether the pregnancy was expected or unexpected, the best thing you can do for your child is teach them to know Jesus. I mean, that's the most important thing you can do. Start praying when you're pregnant and never stop until they come to know Christ. And then you, then you start praying a different prayer that they would grow to be godly and serve the Lord. In verse four, Jochebed has Miriam, the older sister, hiding to see who finds baby Moses. She doesn't know how, but Jochebed believes that God is going to deliver her son. And so she posts Miriam there, and I, the text doesn't tell us, but I imagine she told Miriam, listen, if he's not found by nighttime, bring him back home and we'll try it again tomorrow. But something happens in verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. If this is a movie, and there's musical background like there often is, this is where it goes dun-dun-dun-dun. Pharaoh's daughter shows up. Her dad is the one who has issued the edict that all of the Melbourne Hebrew children should be thrown into the Nile. And so she has her maids fetch the basket. And when she opens it up, what does, what does baby Moses do? Wee. He cried. Scripture says he cried. Why did he do that? Personally, I believe God pinched him. Now you say, why, why would you say that, preacher? What woman, whether it's their baby or not, doesn't want to comfort a crying baby? Doesn't want to say, oh, come come here. Let me love on you. Let, let me hold you, right? I mean, that's just it's it's a natural instinct. And so Moses starts crying and she sees that he's circumcised. She says, This is a Hebrew child. But her heart goes out to him when she hears him whimper and cry. I can imagine Miriam having a panic attack. What are we going to do? It's Pharaoh's daughter of all people that finds him. What am I going to tell mom? And so she runs out and she says, Would you like for me to go get somebody? to to nurse your child because if you were wealthy back then you would often hire a wet nurse to nurse your child for about three years and then you would let the child go to the to the family and so Pharaoh's daughter says that's a great idea go go and so she goes and she gets Jochebed Jochebed shows up and Pharaoh's daughter says listen if you'll feed this child I'll pay you wages and so now not only does Jochebed get to keep the baby but she gets to be paid to keep the baby from Pharaoh's court it's a great deal we harbor children in a hostile world. The third thing is a mother's heart for her child. A mother's heart for her child. I told you Miriam gets Jochebed and she, verse nine says she took him and she nursed him. Now now don't miss this. She's given just a few short years to speak truth into Moses' life. We often underestimate when they're preschoolers how much they understand just a few years to talk about the Lord God, just a few years to talk about faith, just a few years to teach him about the people of God. Moms here, you have a few years to teach your children about God and about faith. Let me just tell you from experience, and I, when we were, when we had preschoolers, people used to tell me this, and, and I got sick and tired of hearing it. I did. People would say, oh, enjoy it because it goes too fast. I'm like, come over to my house. You know, we got preschoolers running around, and it's a nut house some days. Let me just tell you, it goes by way too fast. It does. And so invest in them. Teach them about faith while you have them in the home. Listen, you you could ask some of the great grandmothers that are here, Mom, and they would tell you that they wonder where the years have went. You remember when that first child was born, and it doesn't seem that long ago. Moms, your homes are preaching stations. Now, now we Baptists like to say, women can't preach. Some of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life have been from my mom and my wife. It's true. You know, Listen, when your mom told you, I brought you into this world and I could take you out, that's a sermon. I mean, she's telling you the truth there. When, when she tells you things like, look at me, boy, when I'm talking to you, that she, she, does, she doesn't mean anything other than look at her or don't look at me that way. And as a child, you get confused because on the one hand, she says, look at me when I'm talking to you. And then she says, don't look at me like, like that. And so you're like, what do I do? Jochebed determines that she's going to use these years to teach lessons to Pharaoh, son or grandson eventually. She knows he's going into Pharaoh's house. And I think she taught him two lessons. And I think they're the same two lessons that we ought to teach our children. One is, I think she taught him, you are special to God. I think she taught him, listen, listen, Moses, you need to understand you are special to God. You are the creative, you're a result of the creative activity of the Lord God. Listen, if you're a young person here and somebody tries to tell you you came from some primordial ooze billions of years ago, don't listen to it. You are part of the creative activity of God. Read Psalm 139. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made you. He crafted you while you were in your mother's womb. The second lesson I think she taught him, not only that he was special to God, she taught him who God is. She wanted him to know that his God was not the gods of the Egyptians. That His God was the God who created the universe. That His God was God Almighty. And I believe that she whispered in his ear every chance she got. Moses, don't ever forget who your God is. You know, if uh, if you're a teenager here, you're a child here, and you have a mom and dad who love the Lord and they want you to love Him, and they're giving you every opportunity to know the Lord, you you should feel blessed. I'm guessing that there's probably children here who have complained about some of the rules, regulations, in fact, complained about having to get up and go to church. And and parents, you've heard think, well, it's so-and-so's house. It's different. Yeah, it is different. And thank God that you're not being raised by so-and-so's parents, that your parents love you enough to make sure you come to church. Now, parents if you have children in the home let me just tell you why you should make your child hear me make your child come to church because of number one because of all things that you want your child to know knowing Christ ought to be number one on the list it ought to be the most important thing would you let him drop out of school no you wouldn't let him drop out of school and so why let him drop out of church what's more important to know algebra to know Christ which one's going to matter in eternity Now, I'm not saying you don't want to know algebra. I'm just saying that knowing Christ is the most important thing for a child. I've heard parents say, well, we don't want to force our beliefs on them. Why not? We do it when something's truly important. Do you force them to go to school? Sure you do. Do you force them to to wear their seatbelt in the car? Absolutely. Do you force them to brush their teeth? Do you force them to go to bed at a decent hour? Yes. Yes. You do those things because those are important. And so we force them to come to church with us while they're in the home. Third, well, you know, we're just trying to give them a choice. If you're trying to give them a choice, you're really not giving them a choice at all. You know, if you, th- if you think, well, I'm violating their free will if I make them attend. Aren't you violating their free will if you make them go to school? I mean, you ask your kid, do you want to go to school? Almost all of them. <laughs> Do I have a choice? And if I have a choice, the answer is no. Another one while they're young, parents are obligated. You're, you're obligated to be the parent to teach them a long term vision, not a short term situation, but to teach them how, should, how they should live in the long term. Another reason God says go to church, not forsaking the gathering together of the saints. As is it the habit of some? Hebrews 10 24. Another reason you make them go to church because church is about what God wants, not about what we want. God deserves our worship. God demands our worship. And so we bring them to church because it is what God desires. I could give you more, but hopefully you get the point. Mother's heart for a child. Let me give you one last thing and then we'll give some life application. It's hard to hand over a child. It's hard to let go. How hard do you think it was for Jacobed to let go of Moses after having him about three years? Well, you remember the first day of school? The first child taking that first child to the first day of school? I remember we took Leah to school. I cried like a baby. <laughs> Jen's like, what is wrong with you? We're taking her to school. She, she was four. She hadn't turned five yet. And in Maryville, Tennessee, they had what was called junior primary where they could hold kids back a year. And a lot of parents of boys did that so that their kid they would say they're not ready for first grade, but they were really doing it so they would be a year older when it came time to play sports. And so the first day of school, when we pick her up, they're bringing them out in line. And Leah's in class with Giants. I mean, she's like this, and these, some of these boys are six going on seven years old, and they're huge. And I said, that's it, she's not going back. It was hard to let go. Can you imagine how hard it was for Jochebed to let go? I think she's, she had to have been emotional. She'd done all she could, though. As she let go, I think she probably whispered in his ear, remember who you are, Moses, and remember, I'm praying for you. He goes from a slave's ghetto to living in Pharaoh's court. Things were different socially. He now no longer ran around with slaves. He he was going to run around with people of means. Academically, things were different. The book of Acts says he was trained in all the ways of Egypt. Historians tell us he went to the University of Heliopolis, had 10,000 students in Moses' day. It was the Harvard of the ancient world. I imagine one day he's being taught from a professor about the origin of man and he just kind of chuckles and says no God created me I know where I came from and when our children grow up it's hard to let go it is can't tell you how many times I have seen young couples have issues because parents don't want to let go because they want to stay overly involved in their child's life you can't do that as hard as it is, you have to hand them over. Genesis 2 says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Listen, when your child gets married outside of their relationship to the Lord God, you are no longer number two on their list. Their spouse is number two on their list. And when they have children, you get displaced even further down the list. Okay? Let go. Let them let them make mistakes. Let them learn the hard way, even if it means them moving 2,000 miles away to take a job. You have to let go. What was the end result of Jochebed's training in Moses's life? I don't think he got any any training about faith in Pharaoh's daughter's court in her house. I I don't think there's any way you can imagine that he did, and yet Hebrews 11 says this about him. Now, Think about this. Where, where did it come from? It had to have come from Jochebed when he was first three years. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Where did Moses come to that? It had to have been from his early years of training. I can't texturally prove that, but it just makes logical sense. So let me give you some life application will be done. Life application number one, parenting takes faith. Both women in in the passage demonstrate faith. Jochebed exhibits faith when she hides him for three months. She exhibits faith in God when she puts him in the basket and puts him in the reeds. She exhibits faith that God is somehow going to preserve her child. Pharaoh's daughter exhibited faith when she defied her daddy's order and said, I'm going to raise this child as my own. And by the way, the sovereignty of God is pictured there because I believe that it it put an end to the genocide that Pharaoh had set up because how's he going to kill Hebrew children when his own daughter's raising one? It takes faith to raise kids today. Secondly, parenting takes courage. I have a blog that occasionally I'll post on and I remember a couple of years ago, I, I posted a blog, and it was entitled, The Hardest Job I've Ever Had. And I've had some hard jobs. I told you, I, was, I worked at a lumber yard for one day when I was in seminary. I realized that, that is not for me. Um, first church had a deacon wanted to fight me out in the parking lot. You know, so I've had some hard jobs. But by far, the greatest and hardest job I've ever had is that of being a dad. I don't believe there's any more difficult job than parenting it it takes courage to swim upstream and to teach your children to do it it takes courage to stand against humanism secularism materialism it takes faith it takes courage one last thing it takes strategy parenting takes strategy you have to have a game plan you have to learn to expect the unexpected knowing that the enemy is coming hard against you the last thing he wants is your child to be saved and then if your child gets saved he's going to put every temptation in front of them trying to get them to stumble in their witness so if you have a strategy be strong and exercise it and then the Titus two model invest in younger couples teach them how to raise their kids In Scotland, there was a young man by the name of W.P. Mackey. He was 17 years old when he left home to go to college. His mom thought he was probably headed down a bad path, and so she gave him a Bible the day he left home. She wrote her name on the inside, and she wrote his name, and she wrote a Bible verse. He went to college, and then he went to medical school, and while he was in medical school, he began drinking. one time he was out of money and he wanted to drink and so he took several things that he owned and he pawned them. One of the things that he pawned was his Bible. By now he was an atheist. In fact he was the head of the student atheist organization. Didn't believe there was a God. Becomes a great doctor. In fact he is he is the head doctor at the largest hospital in Edinburgh and a young man comes in who's obviously at the end of his life in Dr. Mackey treats him, and he says, son, I wish there was something I could do for you, but there's not. You have but a few hours to live. And The young man asked him, he said, can I ask one favor? And Dr. Mackey said, sure. He said, would you send for my landlady and tell her to bring the book? Sure, I'll do that. So he gets somebody to go to the house where the young man lived and tell the landlady to bring the book. And so the landlady showed up, and a few hours later, the young man died. And Dr. Mackey stopped one of the nurses and said, so did the landlady get here with the book? And she said, yeah, yeah, he, she made it. Well, what was it? Was it a checkbook? Was it a date book? What was he asking for? And she said, well, it's still in there on his bed. Why don't you go look for yourself? Dr. Mackey walk in, walked into the room, and there on the bed was the Bible. He picked it up, and he began to look at it. Inside the cover was his mom's name, and his name, and a Bible verse. It was the same Bible that he had pawned many years before. W.P. Mackey said he went into his office and got on his knees and with tears in his eyes confessed his sins and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was he a great medical doctor, but he became a great preacher of the gospel and songwriter. It was W.P. Mackey who gave us the words, Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Pray with me. Father, I recognize that this is a difficult day to raise kids. It is exponentially harder than it was when my children were small. And so, God, I pray for strength for these parents, for these moms, that you would give them the the resolve of Jacobed, that they're going to do everything in their power to teach their child to know you, to know they are a special creation from you, and that ultimately one day they will see them serve you. God, we we are grateful for mothers for women who invested in our life. Maybe not just our moms, but other women who taught us Sunday school, who who loved us, who taught us public school and made sure that we were loved. God, we thank you for those women in our lives and for those who are making a difference in children's lives today. Bless them, Lord. Have your will during this invitation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.